This is Footy Time with Daniel Andrews, and as always, I'm joined on the other line by Johnny Raftopoulos. How's it going, Johnny? Morning, Dan. Round two in the books. Uh, some great games again. Some maybe not so great games, but uh, yeah, we've uh, definitely got something to talk about. Yeah, probably didn't quite live up to round one, but there were still some really interesting games and lots to pick out, not least of which Franklin getting to the thousand goal milestone and getting mobbed. Yeah, look, I, I think I don't think there's anyone that didn't think this was a great uh, sight and achievement. Um, yeah, well, I highly doubtful we'll see anything like that again. Yeah, so that is one of our talking points we'll get to a little bit later, but uh, we've got plenty to get through before we get to that. Firstly, we're going to have a look at some of the unexpected teams who are either sitting pretty at 2-0 and zero or worryingly looking down the barrel of a 0-2 start. So the preface for this is how worried or bullish are you about each of these teams? So we'll start with uh, the 2-0 teams. Let's go to Hawthorne first. So they've had a great start to the season, absolutely smashed Port on the weekend, and uh, that was a really uh, well, I guess it was a big upset, really. Most of the tipsers would have been tipping Port and the bookies would have had them heavy favourites. So that was a bit of a turn up there. And uh, yeah, so how bullish are you on the Hawks at the moment, Johnny, and for the rest of the season, perhaps? Um, I guess it's still a small sample size with Hawthorne, but I am impressed with what they seem to be building. Uh, I did think I was one of those people that maybe thought about tipping them, but didn't quite have the guts to do it. But they seem to have a reasonable record over at Adelaide Oval, so it was worth a shout, but no, didn't go through with it. Uh, yeah, I think that they've they've drafted pretty well from what it looks like in the last few years. Um, they've got, they seem to be building a nice back line, as we've mentioned in the past. I think uh, Jayath is definitely the kind of player you'd like to build a team around. And uh, yeah, it was... Yeah, a sensational performance. I think that was probably the best performance of the round, in all honesty. The Hawks kicked 13 straight from set shots. Have you ever heard anything like that in a game, Dan? <laughs> no, and especially not nowadays where teams are often rife with inaccuracy. So that was a great uh, show of accuracy on those set shots. And yeah, I think that was one of the things that stood out in this game about Hawthorne, just their efficiency. Port had more of the ball but really couldn't do anything with it with that dysfunctional forward line. And Hawthorne were getting plenty of drive out of that back line and spotting up targets and, yeah, just really effective. Very, very effective. And I think, yeah, a glimpse into their future. They'll go through different ups and downs and growing pains, but that's a great sign for the fans. So what do you think the ceiling is for this Hawthorne team? I guess I'll preface this by saying that you know, they were actually quite a difficult team to play against last year, especially in the second half of the year, even though they didn't win that many games. And they've got a few guys back now, not least of which Sicily giving them great drive out of that back line. So what do you reckon? What's the ceiling here for Hawthorne? Well, I think you'd like to see one or two more drafts and trade periods for them, a free agency, because that could really shape them into something. But at the moment... Uh, they're definitely building a nice nucleus. It's it's great to see Mitch Lewis starting to perform because I know a lot of Hawthorne fans uh, have been very high on Mitch Lewis. Uh, and you know, a beautiful kick as well. Um, yeah, it's it's hard to say because there's definitely a, a lot of really young, talented players in that side who could, who could be anything. And 
Yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, for me, I think it's more of a two to three year proposition with Hawthorne at the moment. I'd, I'd really like to see what they add to this team and who transitions out. Uh, but there's there's a lot to like about this list. So how long do you reckon they can hang in this season for then? Can they be one of these teams that's challenging for the eight right down to the last month of the season? I think they can. I think they can, providing they, you know, obviously get a good run with injuries. But uh, yeah, I think they're going to... They're going to make it really hard for a lot of teams, even some good teams, to play against. Uh, yeah, I think they can. I don't see any reason why they can't be fighting for a place in the eight. And they're definitely playing a more attacking star under Mitchell than they were under Clarkson. So I think you've still got some of that good defensive DNA in there. Obviously, a lot of the players are the same. But uh, yeah, a lot to like for Hawthorne supporters. And uh, yeah, maybe it's not going to take as long as we thought, but... You never do know, and uh, yeah, it's just great to see them playing well, and some of the guys that have been there for a while now gelling well. So I let's think move on. The, oh, you the, just a real key yep. question with Hawthorne is, can they kick a score against the top eight team on a regular basis? That's probably my, my main question with them. Yeah, one to watch going forward. So we talked about this next team last week. We were very impressed. It's Collingwood, of course. And uh, they followed it up by absolutely smashing Adelaide at the MCG. So, how bullish are we on the Pies, Johnny, after two rounds? Jeez, yeah, this this one's interesting because you, you sort of expect... Well, I'm expecting with Collingwood to see a tiny bit of a drop-off at, at some point because the way that they're playing, you wonder if it's sustainable. But, you know, I just keep thinking back to Melbourne last year and how if you start off well... It, anything can happen if you if you get those wins early, um, you know you package the momentum up. It's it's a really really interesting. It's it's really interesting what's happening with Collingwood at the moment. They just they completely overhauled the way they play, and it it's really catching a lot of teams off guard. I mean, they they sort of getting to the front of contests all the time, providing some good handball receive options. Uh, they've become a, a very well structured team and. Opposition teams are probably going to need to think twice about kicking down the line because uh, the Pies have just got some great, you know, pressure in the contest and second efforts and uh, yeah, they're just they're just holding really good structure at the moment. Um, I actually heard Matthew Lloyd say last week that he could see the Clarkson influence and the Hardwick influence on Craig McRae. Uh, oh, okay, that's uh, interesting. You had like the the well set up zone, which is I guess Clarko's influence, and also. Hardwick's mantra of just getting the ball into the forward line quickly and you know at all costs um, with pressure around the contest. So, yeah, really good insight there from Lloydie. Yeah, but- he's definitely hit the ground running, McRae, and I think a lot of people thought he was a pretty shrewd choice. Definitely wasn't on the first line of betting when no, you know no. that job came up. But uh, yeah, he had a lot of success in his time at Brisbane as a player, and uh, he's done some great apprenticeships. So. I think Collingwood would be very happy with the way things are going, particularly how it had been for the last couple of years. But you have heard people in the media and some of the experts as well over the last couple of years basically saying that Collingwood still does have the core of a really good team. And, you know, various people have sort of laughed that off. But I guess in one way, they still kind of do have the core of what took them to the grand final in 2018. It was just things kind of went off the rails a little bit with getting ultra defensive and, you know, some pretty bad injuries to players, loss of form. And uh, now it all just sort of seems to be going in the other direction. Not saying that, you know, going to finish in the eight, but 
you know, maybe they are going to be one of these teams that is challenging for those last couple of spots in the eight now. And you, you're finding that they, that when you look back at that, I guess that 2018 team, there's still a lot of those players that are great hard running mids and that, that, that can, you know, go up and down, up and down. I mean, still side bottom, his running ability is so underrated, I reckon. I mean, we all know him for being the great, you know, user of the ball and, and foot skills, but he's one of the, I think he'd have to be one of the best two-way runners going around. Yeah, absolutely. I guess, yeah, last couple of years in particular, it has been a bit harder for Collingwood to score. It was a bit hard to know how much of that was their game style versus their forward options. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think they do have more options going forward. Like now, they're not having any trouble kicking goals at the moment. And yeah, they've got some good sort of medium-sized utilities up there as well to complement the bigger guys. So yeah, it will be interesting to see how they perform against some of the teams they're expected to do a little bit better in the season. But yeah, all signs are positive for Collingwood at the moment. And I'm sure it's a breath of fresh air to Collingwood supporters who had to sit through some pretty hard games the last couple mm. of years. I think McQuarrie's definitely one to watch. Really like the way he goes about it. Yeah, they've got a kind of a suite of these young guys that on paper you wouldn't have really expected that much of, but they've got something about them. So mm. could be interesting in the next couple of years to see what happens. Yeah, for sure. All right, so this is probably one of the most surprising, if not the most surprising. Oh, I don't know. All of these are pretty surprising in their own way, the fact that they got to 2-0. But Carlton at 2-0, and zero, having accounted for both the Tigers and also the Western Bulldogs, last year's grand finalists in successive weeks. The good old Navy Blues sitting 2-0. and zero. And uh, there's a lot of hype around them. How bullish are you, Johnny, on... The Navy Blues. Jeez, well, yeah, this is the team that's impressed me the most personally. And uh, I think they've probably got the highest ceiling out of the three teams we've mentioned as well. Um, I'm just trying to think, though, what the a few things that have changed from last season to this season. And was, I've sort of come up with, I guess, three things. Mm-hmm. They've obviously got better structure and organization down back. You know, last year, defenders looked like they really didn't know what they were doing. So far, it looks like Everyone in that back six knows their role. Um, the second one is the midfield is just absolutely buzzing at the moment. Paddy Cripps looks as fit as he's ever been. Um, and the other thing about Cripps, just quickly, is he's, at the moment, he's obviously looking so fit, but um, he's got that ability to break away from the contest, which is turning out to be a real key asset for, I guess, you not just your see ball, get ball midfielder, but um, just you know, some of the best mids in the comp. You know, um, Danger yeah, does it, Petrarca does it, yeah. It seemed like it almost lost that the last year, 18 months. Maybe yeah. there was sort of, I know there was always the talk that he had like those underlying injuries and, you know, maybe that's one aspect of the game where it does affect you if you've got that niggling injury, just have that explosiveness away from contest. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And on Thursday night, one thing that's sticking in my head is, Cripps' ability to just win the footy in that in the middle and, and accelerate out of the contest and use it effectively with some slick handball to a running teammate. It was fantastic. Um, and I guess the third thing is is the, the ball transition is much better. I mean, the middle set up well, but the Blues work really hard to create open options. Uh, you know, they did that very well in the first half. But um, something I've found, Dan, with the Blues is their ability to they might kick sort of a 30 to 40 meter kick to a contest, but as soon as the ball's hitting the deck at the moment, they're able to get onto it, 
but handball it out to a, a guy next to him in motion. So the guy might yeah, only be yeah. a couple of meters away to the side, but they're in a much better position, hitting it at pace, not stationary, and the ball just keeps moving. It's, it's actually, on Thursday night, it actually seemed a lot like watching the dogs when they're in full flight and the grand ball contest and how good they are with that. So, yeah, yeah. What, what, what are your thoughts? So what, what impressed you the most about the Blues? Yeah, I think one of the biggest differences in, is in that midfield. Obviously, Cripps has gone to another level. They've got a few other guys in, in terms of Hewitt and Chera. Mm. So, and even Kennedy has gone to another level. So yep. I think one of the reasons Cripps is doing so well He's probably got his fitness, but there's just more support there. It's a lot easier when you don't have to try and do everything. So spreading the load and, yeah, they're just doing really well around that contested area. Uh, so they're making it quite difficult for oppositions. They're still probably not the cleanest once they get the ball on the outside, but maybe that'll come. And, like, they're, be- they're still being clean enough to, you know, give forwards a chance every now and then forward. And they've got a pretty stacked forward line with, uh, you know... McKay and Kerno up there, Charlie Kerno back from his knee injury. They look pretty imposing. And uh, yeah, I still don't think they're anywhere near the finished product and you wouldn't expect them to be. But yeah, there's a lot more pieces of the puzzle than uh, maybe anyone would have thought uh, before Voss got his fingerprints on this side. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, you know, while Cripps is playing, you know, Cripps probably has six Brownlow votes at the moment, but. Yeah, those guys that you mentioned, you know, the Kennedys, the Hewitts, uh, you know, the Cheras, and Walsh was back as well. Uh, just, yeah, their ability to be running in numbers and get into these positions. And, yeah, I think it's a great team effort. Uh, I, I think another thing we're probably going to hear a lot more about, we always talk about how we think a midfielder that kicks goals is, you know, worth their weight in gold. I reckon this year we're going to start hearing a lot more about the midfielder that is really good at riding shotgun, the one that is running up and down and, and just always making that option, you know, like your, like your Adam Trelaws, your Walshers, Lockie Whitfields, you know, your, your Took Miller, those kinds of players. I think that that ability to make that option and be running, uh, yeah, I think, in, especially in a game where, you know, you need to be running and running and running, I think that's going to be, yeah, we're going to really pay attention to those types of midfielders. Yeah, it really helps break the game open and it seems like teams are trying to get that option, get it on quick and just give that sort of, not necessarily full chaos, but just get it inside 50 and then, you know, once you get it in quickly, it's almost a 50-50 whether you score or not. Whereas if you go a bit slower, uh, it reduces significantly. So those players who can just provide that option to get it on quickly, perhaps they're worth their weight in gold there. Yes, yes, for sure. So obviously, bigger tests to come. Bulldogs were a significant test, but I think they did have a few caveats. The fact that, you know, they made the grand final probably a week or two less preparation than everyone else. And they did really dominate that second half. So I wanted to put this to you, Johnny, because I actually missed the second half of that Carlton Bulldogs game. It looked like on paper that the Bulldogs probably should have won that game. I can't remember what scoring shots were, but they had, I think, almost double Carlton scoring shots in that second half. And they ended up only losing by a couple of goals. So... On paper, it looked like the Bulldogs should have won the game. Does that is that the way the game played out, or well, just did enough on paper? Yeah, and look, uh, to be honest, I think that the Bulldogs should have uh, been a, a bit closer. If not, they should have wrestled the lead back at some point. I'm not saying they definitely would have won, but yeah, I do agree. There were some very gettable set shots, 
uh, from guys like uh, Waitman and uh, I think um, I think Dunkley might have missed a couple as well. Some pretty routine shots inside 50. Um, so, yeah, look, I definitely think the Bulldogs should have made more of a fist of it and, you know, had a, chance, a shot of winning it. But the, I've got to say, though, the one thing that really impressed me about Carlton was their ability to answer. Yeah, so, yeah. I think in, it was in the third or the fourth quarter when Mitch Hannon kicked a ridiculous goal <laughs> through the boundary, um, and it was a, it was seemed like a team lifter. I got them within twelve points, and uh, this was actually my uh, was my favourite moment of this game was the centre clearance straight after that, seeing Paddy Cripps just coming straight through, just taking that ball. I think he might have swept it out with a handball to I think it was Walsh or someone, but they ended up getting it to Kerno for a scoring shot, and Kerno drilled it. It was. 30-second reply, and I felt like Carlton were doing that a fair bit. They had the answers, and yeah, so it, it's hard to say if the Dogs would have won, but they definitely should have had a better shot of winning it, I think. Yeah. All right, let's move on from Carlton. Now we'll go to the 0-2 teams, and we're already talking about the Dogs. Why not continue talking about them? So <laughs> uh, how worried are we about these teams? So there's four teams on this list. We'll go through them one by one. Bulldogs, GWS, Port, Adelaide and Essendon. These all teams that made the finals last year. So, yeah, pretty unexpected that you'd have so many teams on 0-2 that made the finals last year. So, yeah. Bulldogs first, 0-2, losses to Melbourne and Carlson. How worried are we, Johnny? Well, you could make a case for the Dogs being the most disappointing so far, but oh, I wouldn't quite go that far. Uh, as for how worried you'd be, well... I would want to be playing Sydney this week, to be honest. Um, I know it's down here, but that's definitely going to be a tough ask coming off two defeats and you need a win. Uh, I think the week after that, they have Richmond. So it's not an easy run. Um, but I do think there's a lot there. I am a big fan of the Bulldogs midfield and I, I would still be backing. I mean, I, I wouldn't pencil them in for top four, but I, I would still be very confident about top eight. It, it is hard. I mean, it, it, the one thing I'll say is it is hard. That we, we've got, there's a few two and zip teams. I mean, yeah, you've got, uh, you've got, uh, well, obviously you've got Melbourne, you've got Collingwood, Carlton, you know, all those, but there's a few that uh, have hit the ground running and, you know, it's, it's going to be hard to make that up. I mean, the, the dogs might have to win, I don't know, like, 16 of their last 20 to make top four. So that's a that's a bit daunting. You know, it's all about banking them early. Look, I'd give them a little bit more time. I'd be holding fire on them. But uh, you wouldn't want to lose too many more to uh, teams that didn't make the eight last year, I guess. Yeah, that's for sure. So I think, for me, the worry with the Bulldogs is just how much score they could generate which seems kind of strange to say because you know especially in the first half of last year they were probably the team that was scoring the most I think a lot of that was off the back of you know spreading from the contest and just sort of torching teams with pretty wide open options but in terms of when they have to really you know be spotting up an option inside 50 under a bit of pressure they just don't seem to have a huge number of options outside of Norton obviously English can take a mark but even last year, they didn't actually take that many marks inside 50. So no. when they're not getting the play, like really going all their own way, then it is harder for them to generate a score. And uh, yeah, it's 
it's a pretty hard way to exist in the AFL when you can't rely on you know taking you know ten or so marks inside fifty to generate mm. a significant number of shots. They do seem to be missing Josh Bruce as well as that. I guess second or third forward. He he did play a pretty key part, I think, last year. And yeah, it it there are times when you wonder where that next score is coming from for the dogs if it's not going to be from the midfield. And yeah, it's it's not ideal for a team that's going to be having a shot at the flag. You, you kind of need something to happen up forward when the when the chips are down, I guess. Yeah. So just going back quickly to what you were saying about uh, you know Sydney this week and even Richmond the week after, if they go 0-3 or 0-4, you can almost wipe top four off the table straight away. I'm not mm. saying they can't make the eight, but as you're saying, with the number of games you've got to win to make top four, you can almost take it off the table. So it's time for a response from the Bulldogs. You could have seen it in that second half against Carlton. They had their chances. Didn't happen. Yep. So let's see. Even when they were you know, going well last year, they lost to Sydney. So that'll be a big game there. Yeah, so... It's not panic stations yet, but, uh, yeah, it could be very quickly. Um, the other thing I was watching, I, I like Tim English, but there's just times when I feel like he could be a bit more physical. I feel like he could crash a few more packs and just let the opposition know he's there a bit more. I mean, he's, he's got a massive frame. and I don't know. It might, it's probably not his style, I guess, but I, I just there's just moments where I think as a big imposing ruckman you'd like to see a bit more physical intimidation yeah absolutely so let's keep going we've still got a few teams to get through yep greater western sydney so they had that great game against sydney the week before didn't quite get the job done and yeah a lot of people were tipping them against the tigers but Mm. uh, couldn't quite stick with them and the tigers ended up winning that one by six goals so how worried are you about gws here johnny uh more worried than i was two weeks ago to be honest that's probably been the biggest swing, I guess, in terms of how worried I would be. And I wasn't worried a few weeks ago. But um, I'm not really sure what the Giants are at the moment. They seem – like what's they, – they just seem to be a bit all over the map right now with, with their with their game plan. And I'm just not sure. They're just in a bit of a, a state of flux at the moment, I think. And. They looked really slow yesterday. They looked they looked fairly gassed towards the end, and I'm just yeah, I'm just not sure. I mean, this, this, these are the kinds of things that can sometimes be good to have early on in the season. We saw it with Essendon, I think, last year. They were, after two games, you were wondering mm, what's happening defensively, things like that. But that smoothed out. No reason why this can't happen for the Giants as well. But yeah, they were just they were quite underwhelming. I thought yesterday and. Uh, yeah, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure where a winning score is going to come from consistently. I just don't know if Hogan will stay on the park on a regular basis. Uh, it, it, there's a lot resting on that midfield. I'm not, yeah. What, what are your thoughts, Dan? I'm, I'm really uncertain about them. Yeah, I guess that was the big thing with GWS. How are they going to kick a winning score, especially while Toby Green's not there? And they're still sort of playing a more traditional defense rather than like a zoning defense which most teams are so I guess that was one of the queries with Leon Cameron's coaching like was he going to get extended based on some of this they've got a lot of talent are they fulfilling it but uh, I think we were having a similar conversation at the start of last year they're about to go 0-3 or 0-4 and they really turned it around so I guess they are Mm. one of these teams who can just sort of 
get on a roll. So I think they are always going to be dangerous, but I'm just not sure what's going to take them beyond what they were sort of last year at the moment where they are sort of, you know, finishing in the lower reach of the eight and a difficult team to play, but probably a fair way off, you know, even making a prelim or certainly winning one. I think sometimes as well, their back line can be a bit, I don't know, deceptively better than it actually is. I mean, I didn't think not having Phil Davis would, would seem like such a big loss, but it, it really looked like there was a gaping hole. I mean, I really like Sam Taylor, but he's he's probably their next best right now. I mean, Nick Haynes was probably uh, a bit underdone, but I don't know. I think that might need some time to get back get happening again, really, just getting some cohesion there. But uh, I don't know. I just thought they, were, they looked a bit just out of sync yesterday. Yeah, and it's never easy playing an away game. And, you know, no. Richmond were up for that game. But, yeah, it's time to see a response from GWS. And, yeah, made all the more difficult by Toby Green still be, being out with that suspension carrying over from last year. Yeah, yeah, and that's definitely going to hurt for a few weeks here. All right, probably the biggest surprise looking at their games on paper, Port Adelaide sit 0-2, and as we talked about earlier, they got absolutely pantsed by Hawthorne again at Adelaide Oval where they had that shocker in the prelim against the Dogs as well. So how worried are we about Port Adelaide, Johnny? Oh, man. <laughs> where do you start with Port Adelaide? They were They have been the most unimpressive disappointing team for me anyway after two rounds uh i mean yeah look like i said you, you could you could make a little case for the dogs being the most disappointing but i don't know port they've really made it hard for their fans lately that prelim was was bad enough i mean that was you, you're i guess you're allowed to have something like that every once in a blue moon but uh to sort of repeat that so soon is just a real slap in the face for the, for the Port Faithful. Not putting up a whimper in crucial moments. That's all I, all I can think about right now. And we expected them, I definitely expected them to come out firing in these, in this first month after last year. Um, they honored one of their greatest ever players, uh, Russell Ebert, uh, and still couldn't fire a shot. I don't know. I know that's a little bit isolated, but you know, big the big occasion in Port Adelaide. They're just those two, those two things aren't going together for me right now. Yeah, there yeah. are some mitigating factors here. I think in terms of you know they don't have Charlie Dixon at the moment. Their backline they're missing Alia Alia and a couple of other guys. I think Cleary and maybe a yeah. couple of the other guys might K- be a little K- bit outs, underdone. K- but like it doesn't give you really that ex- much of an excuse against a team who's expected to be finishing in the bottom half the eight, they had a lot of the ball in this game. They just couldn't yep. do anything with it. And I think that has been the knock on them for quite a while. Like, how dangerous is their forward line outside of Dixon? When Dixon's not kicking goals, how are they going to kick goals? They don't really get that many goals through the midfield. Their small foot forwards are sort of feast or famine. It just seems quite dysfunctional at the moment. They had so many inside 50s and just couldn't really generate anything out of it. So it goes back to this whole idea of quality versus quantity again it increasingly it seems in the afl that the quality is so much more important hawthorne got smashed on almost every you know major stat here 
but yep. they were so effective with what they were doing inside 50, it really didn't matter. Yeah. I just don't... Like, we know Charlie Dixon is important for them, but it's kind of annoying in a way how important he is. <laughs> I mean, I'm just looking at this now, and you had Todd Marshall, Jeremy Finlayson, Mitch Georgiatis, they were all held goldless. goalless. Wow. Um, and... Small forwards, as you said, they can be erratic. I guess without Dixon being that sort of pillar to, you know, bring it to ground and that, guys like um, Motlop and that seem a bit useless as well. I mean, uh, yeah, I just I just don't quite get how – because I think they've got a really talented list and I just don't quite get how they aren't – they aren't stepping – some of these guys aren't stepping up when they need to. So I'm, I'm actually mm. – to be honest, I'm looking at the guys like Dersma and Rosie as well. I'm, I'm still don't quite know. I think they're great talents, but I'm still not convinced that they're the ones that are going to take the game by the scruff of the neck or be future captains. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, it is a bit confusing though, like because essentially it's more or less the same team that they've had the last two years, where they yeah. finished pretty close to the top of the ladder. So uh, I guess it just shows that you know once a thing or two start going against you, it can be really quite difficult to turn the tide. And, like, they were in that Brisbane game, but they just couldn't yeah. hurt Brisbane yeah. enough while they were in control. And I guess that goes back to, you know, the lack of scoring power again. So, yeah, I guess they're another big watch here. Can they rescue things? You'd have to say they definitely can, but, you know, yeah. they're, far, they're fast running out of time if they get another couple of losses on board in the next month or so top four might be off the table yeah i mean that's that's it i mean i think you really need to bank some points early if you're going to be in that top four conversation but uh look take nothing away from the hawks they were fantastic but yeah that it just seems when port's weaknesses are exposed and illuminated they are really in focus and you see the yeah you definitely see the frail sides of them and yeah, it's, they uh, did have quite a few games last season against lower-ranked opponents that, you know, they were a bit underwhelming. They usually ended up winning, not by much, sort of under sort of two goals. And we always just thought, oh, yeah, okay, Port, you're doing just enough to win. But, you know, like the side of a really good team is to, you know, put those sort of games to bed a little bit earlier than that and not have the half where you look pretty underwhelming. So, yeah, maybe, maybe they're not the dominant team that they look like they were on paper. Maybe that's a little unfair, but... Oh, look, still still a great side on paper, I guess, but and they you like they should get something together. Uh, but the question is, is this, is this a side that can win a flag? Does this side have the mental resolve mm. and, you know, the just that the right stuff when, when the chips are down, when they really need... Someone to stand up. Yeah, I think um, that's a big question, especially coming out of that prelim. And at the moment, you'd have to say it's not looking like they do. But, you know, give them time to get everything back together and see what they're like then. But, uh, yeah, definitely some worrying signs. It also, hearing Ken Hinckley talk, I mean, it's hearing that the defence broke down, the forward line broke down, it doesn't fill you with a lot of confidence. And something with their ball movement, they were just bombing it in all the time. It, I was really enjoying the power last year when they had that sort of build-up play and, you mm. know, the, the nice overlaps happening. That was what was really catching teams off guard. This was very predictable, making it 
extremely easy for defenders to mop up, opposition defenders. Yeah, Hawthorne were generating a lot of their score coming out of the D50 as well. So yep. they were just waltzing out of there. All right, last well, team. Just lastly, Dan, they have oh, the sure. showdown this week. No better uh, time yes. to get things back on track. Absolutely. That should be an interesting game. All right. Last team on our list of 0-2 teams that we wanted to chat about is the Essendon Bombers. So, again, they made the eight. Uh, not convincingly, but, you know, they did make the eight and uh, haven't started too well. Got absolutely pants by DeLong in the first round. And they were in that game against Brisbane, but ultimately couldn't get the job done at Marvel Stadium. Mm. How worried are you about the Bombers here, Johnny? Yeah, well, it just comes back to what we... We said at the start of the year, how are they going to kick a winning score? I mean, Peter Wright started off very good. He looks impressive, but you know, can he keep that up over the course of a season? Uh, lots of good young talent there, obviously. But I don't know. Essendon just remind me of a a team that has a lot of a lot going for it, but runs on momentum, almost runs on emotion, I guess as well. Uh, you know, that's a stupid comparison, but when I was younger and playing school rugby, um, you'd sometimes come up against schools that had a lot of good, you know, flair players and that, but they ran on confidence. And, you know, if they started well, they'd usually be good for the game. If they didn't start well, if literally the first five minutes wasn't good, then you kind of had them. So <laughs> I, I just get that feeling with this. And I get, if they don't get a good sort of start and a nice mental pep up, then they just sort of lose the plot a bit. Yeah, they had a really good start to that game, but as soon yeah. as Brisbane started coming back at them in the second, yep. you could see a few signs that were a little bit worrying. They just weren't hard enough at the man or the contest, really. And, yeah, I think that goes to what you're saying. Once they have the momentum swing against them, I don't think they're great at arresting that momentum at the moment or at least even like limiting the damage. Yeah, and I look at guys like Devin Smith and there's a few players I don't think are playing their best footy at the moment. And yeah, he was, you know, I guess, I think he was the best and fairest a few years ago. Um, yeah, just just a bit down on their on their confidence at the moment. It doesn't help. And yeah, I mean, obviously I'm not jumping off Essendon, but I'd like to see what they can do when, when they are challenged. And I, I, I thought... I also thought that um, that uh, Rutten was outcoached in this game as well. I just think Fagan, yeah, he came with a plan and and they stuck with it. They ended up getting things their way and they got the they got the chocolates. So yeah, it yeah. just it just doesn't get much easier for any of these zero two teams. Like Essendon has to play Melbourne now Friday night. Mm. So once you start zero two, it's not hard to see why you know the strike rate for these teams making the finals is so low because. Often, you know, in the next couple of weeks, you're going to be playing against a pretty good team, so you're really staring down the barrel. Yeah, and look, you can take your scalps and get back into it, but it's not the place you want to be, is it? (laughs) You have to do it with your back to the wall. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we still do have a few other topics we wanted to get through today. So it was great to go through some of those unexpected teams. So much happening. Uh, Let's go to buddy watch now so this has been building for a while i remember i think it was at the start of last season or we had a bit of a chat about you know would buddy ever actually get to the thousand and he played quite a number of games last season closing in 994 and yeah kicked the four goals he needed at the scg 
to reach that thousand dollar uh, thousand goal uh, milestone. And yeah, I guess the AFL came out and wasn't going to be too hard on people running on the ground, and that resulted in about three quarters of the crowd being on the <laughs> ground and that aerial view where it, the Swans players, in particular Franklin, were just getting absolutely mobbed. And uh, yeah, it was quite a spectacle. It was quite a spectacle. Um, maybe yeah, we'll just quickly touch on on that the the spectacle. Very very, you know, very impressive how they did it. Um, I loved the fire one thousand thing that was cool and the aerial view. It it's a it was awesome to see. Uh, it was great to see people having fun. But then, you know, there's a but coming. <laughs> I am kind of glad that it's over as well, because that kind of I don't want to see that kind of thing every week in footy. I think that that whole situation could have gone pear-shaped pretty quickly. I'm sure they planned extensively on this whole situation, like, you know, preempted situation. And there's probably no perfect way to plan it. But I thought there was a real lack of security there. I was really surprised that they didn't sort of get a security ring around Buddy and that people were just able to go right up to him with their yeah, phones and a bit much, wasn't it? be there for half an hour and... He was a great sport about it. You could tell he was getting a little tired of it, but he was a great sport. Um, but all sorts of things happened. It was pandemonium. I mean, have you heard the story about the woman spreading the ashes and that? Uh, no, I haven't heard that. Oh, I'm, I don't know the full story, but there were just all sorts of things like that. People with blankets on the wing. I mean, look, it was it's fun. It's a, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But I just think that the AFL would be very, very happy that nothing bad happen because um, I just see a situation where, you know, a, a, an eight-year-old kid runs out onto the ground, they fall over and that crowd's not stopping. It, it, it's a, a stampede. and it, We haven't even talked about the COVID factor here. I mean, this is pretty <laughs> much a super spreader event. So, yeah. Uh, seeing also, I've heard a few Geelong players, I uh, don't, don't know them by name, but I think they're anonymous, but um, oh, Jeremy Cameron, I think, might have said something, but they thought that there were times when it felt unsafe, that it could have been bad. Seeing that vision of, uh, I think it was Ollie Florent and maybe Callum Mills outside the ground. I mean, it was funny and we all like, had a laugh about it, but it was a bit silly how they kind of weren't marshaled into the rooms or whatever. Or they, you know, you kind of almost need like an evacuation plan. It's like when this happens, you need to get over here. I thought that was strange. And the AFL, like I said, I think they would be glad that uh, nothing serious happened. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get on to the side of it in terms of how big of an achievement this actually was. So it was the first time anyone had kicked a 1,000 goals since Plugger Logger, also playing for Sydney. So, yep. yeah, just how big an achievement is it that Buddy was able to get to the 1,000 goals? Yeah, look, I was thinking about this and, and how impressive this achievement is and what he means to the game. Uh, I think he's the most exciting player of the modern era, really. I mean, the only sort of... The only excitement machine I can think of that comes close to Buddy is Gary Ablett Sr., really. Um, you know, two-time Premiership player, eight-time All-Australian, four-time Coleman. Paved his own way. Um, not a key forward that took a lot of contested marks or, you know, reached out the mitts. I mean, he took the regulation set shot approach and threw it out the window for the Buddy arc. And, <laughs> um, you know, that lasting image of Buddy in my head is always gathering the footy on a half-forward flank outside 50 and wheeling around to launch it through the big sticks and... For someone 199 centimetres to have the speed that he has or had back in his prime, it's a total anomaly, really. And, yeah, I, I don't think we'll see someone quite like Buddy for a 
very long time. Um, what are your thoughts, Dan? Yeah, I suppose when he signed that contract for Sydney moving over from Hawthorne, no one really thought he would actually see out the whole length of the contract. And no. it now looks like he's going to, which is impressive in its own way. I know he's had a few injury issues over the last few years, but he seems to have got that more or less right or as much as a 36-year-old can mm. have it right. So, uh, yeah, I guess what's one of the things that's most impressive as well as his athleticism is, you know, the, just the long kicking. He can kick goals from anywhere, really. He's not always the most accurate, but he's one of those players that, you know, if you get the ball in his hands a few times a game, he can win you the game off his boot. And he's done that many, many times. And yeah, I suppose if he'd kicked a little bit more accurately, you know, his accuracy over the course of his career is below 60%. Uh, he would have done this quite a while ago. So yeah. there's that as well. I think he's had roughly 1,700 uh, set shots. So yeah, the, like early in his career, it wasn't uncommon for him to be getting, you know, eight to 10 shots a game. Often no. a lot of them were points, but yeah, he is just a ball magnet. And uh, the way he, uh, you know, made sure that this was going to happen in front of the home crowd. And yeah, he was getting in the right spots to get these last couple of goals and kicking very straight, actually. So it was ultra impressive. His set shooting was actually really good, wasn't it? Uh, that first one with the, yeah, it was a beautiful drop punt. Yeah, you thought he was going to come around, but uh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I think he's just, uh, he's that kind of player that if he's playing, he can play a bad game and kick four, really. So he just has that many ways to kick a goal. And yeah, he's just a total excitement machine. And yeah, he's been an absolute pleasure to see his career. Do you have any particular goal or play that you remember most out of Franklin's time? Oh, look, it's hard to go past the one against uh, the Bombers playing for the Hawks, uh, the, the running one, when, you know, with Kale Hooker chasing. Uh, uh, <laughs> Where he, he started he, about half back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, look, that's, that was something special. I think he repeated it for Sydney against the Crows. Um, yeah, and obviously he definitely loved to beat up on Melbourne. <laughs> um, <laughs> so definitely got a lot of memories of him, of him doing that. But I think it's got to be that. I mean, what, what do you have in mind? I can't remember the exact game, but it was one of these Hawthorne-Geelong games. This is when they had their huge rivalry. I think it was a really tight game, the MCG, and Hawthorne had brought it out from, I think a point had just been kicked. They'd gone pretty much long straight down the centre, yeah. and I think uh, Franklin received the handball, and he basically hurdled <laughs> a player in the centre. Yeah. And, uh, you know, taking another few steps, going long from about 60 and nailing the goal. So that was just an amazing goal in the context of that game. And yeah, not many players would be able to do any of what he did there in terms of uh, just, you know, kicking out that long or yeah, having the sort of audacity to basically take the game on like that. Yeah. An amazing play. Yeah. yeah. No, so many good moments. All right. Lastly on this, will we ever see another Franklin or not so much another Franklin, but a player who's capable of playing for, you know, 15 plus years to actually get close to this 1,000 goal achievement? Hmm. Yeah. Look, it's easy to say no. And I think it'll be very unlikely. But I'm not sure. I mean, it could happen again. You, you just don't know which way the game's going to evolve. We might see a time where the true full forward comes back and. I mean, we saw a glimpse of it last year, I think, at the start of the year when, I guess, you had to 
a lot of those key forwards like Taylor Walker and that doing well. Uh, yeah, look, I, I don't know. You just don't know which way the game's going to go. It could, I, I won't say it definitely won't, but I'm leaving the door open slightly. Yeah, you're right. It is very easy to say no if you look through the sphere of how the game is currently being played. But, you know, records are made to be broken. Mm. And people always think these records are never going to be get broken. And more often than not, they'd actually do eventually get broken. Yeah. So we know the game is played very differently to when most players were kicking a 1,000 goals. And over the whole history of the game, I think, what is it, only like sort of five or six players who have actually done this. Yeah, so, six, I think, yeah. So I'm going to say it probably will happen again. Just yep. if, if, you know, if the game goes for another 100 or so years, there's probably going to be another, you know, freakishly skilled player who plays for almost 20 years and probably will either get close to this or actually do it. Yeah, I mean, with the way the rule changes are going, who knows? Maybe the forward will be benefited even more from them. <laughs> All right, let's keep going. So this actually came in from uh, a one-time panelist on this show, Danny, for those of you guys who have listened to some of the early episodes when we are reviewing Grand Finals. He was keen to come on today and have a chat about the importance of centre clearance, but his wife Sophie actually went into labour this morning, so we weren't actually able to get that done. Congratulations. <laughs> so hopefully... Uh, by the time you're listening to this, they'll have uh, a beautiful baby girl and uh, not quite sure what the name's going to be, but let's get to the stat in uh, Danny and Sophie's honour. So the stat Danny came with, I'm not exactly sure where he got this from, but uh, maybe I'll just throw it to you briefly, Johnny, before we actually get to the number. Uh, how important do you think it is to be winning centre clearance based on the way the game's being played in the first two weeks here? Uh, I think it's incredibly important right now, absolutely, because um, obviously with the way the 666 is set up, the way that teams are playing at the moment, there's a lot more, I guess the mentality has really shifted towards the Richmonds and the Melbournes who are hell-bent on getting the ball forward quickly, and yep, the rest of the competition is seeing this, they're not mucking around kicking sideways as much, it's more just about let's just get it in there and see what happens. If there's pace on that ball, defence has less time to get set, more one-on-ones inside 50, it makes the centre bounce clearance game heaps more important, I think. And So yeah. it may surprise you to know that 66% of teams that are winning the centre clearances are actually losing the game. Wow. Is that the case? According to Danny, I'll have to trust him on that one. Is that based on the first two rounds? <laughs> based on the first two rounds, okay. yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Interesting, interesting. Uh, is so, that like so? If they're win- if they're winning just the general clearance count? No, no, no. I think this is specific center clearance. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Any idea why that might be? I've got an idea. Uh, well, I think it would have a lot to do with the quality of those entries. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I reckon. Yeah. So you got to dig into it a little bit more, right? So raw numbers like a lot of things, maybe the clearances aren't that important, but what probably is in court in important is sort of like getting that really open look where you're getting it in super quick to 666, as you said, and you've almost got a 50-50 chance of scoring at worst. So mm. I th- we almost need 
different versions of these stats now like it's almost like an open v closed or some measure of actually how effective these things are because i'm pretty sure if you flip this stat to look at how effective these clearances were in terms of how open it is after you're getting out of the contest if you had uh the number of open center clearances each team is generating i'm pretty sure this would reverse and you'd be getting most of the teams that are winning that stat winning the game um so is the open clearance like a, a clear one out and what's the yeah basically one? just basically just anything where you're coming out of the front of stoppage or it's just like not a hugely pressurized kick forward and you're actually being able to get it within you know i don't know uh within the 50 or i don't know what the exact measure is but you know, aesthetically, when you look at these clearances, there's a big difference between how cleanly you can actually take it away and whether you're coming out of the front of stoppage. So we're seeing a lot yeah. more goals from center clearance, but most of these are coming when, you know, you are able to link it, link up a little bit through that center square or just come out the front of the stoppage. So you can't do that all the time, and that might be what's masking these numbers a little bit here. Yeah, and I think that, it's got a little bit of the um, the inside 50 stat about it as well. I mean, yeah. uh, you see a lot of teams, I'm sure Port were killing inside 50s. Gold Coast yeah. did on Saturday night. It, it's a, a nice stat, but it probably tells about 20% of the story. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think I would love to see some kind of stat that, that shows, yeah, a clearance to advantage. I think we've mentioned that before. Something like that. We'd like to be able to dig into it a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess looking at this, while the clearances aren't the most important, if you can get one that where you're getting that open look or you're giving your forward the advantage, then I think we've seen in the open rounds that that's giving you a chance to score quite quickly. So uh, maybe, yeah, not about raw clearance numbers, but you'd need to be getting your fair share of these open looks to give yourself a chance to get some goals on the board quickly. There's no doubt that the attitude towards the center clearance has changed, I think. Um, I heard Jared Healy say that in the 80s, it was always about, you know, winning the clearance, like, uh, getting it and getting a good entry in. In the 2000s, it sort of became a bit more about stopping them from winning it and then thinking about winning it, I guess, um, but, but making sure they didn't. Now we're sort of coming back to winning it and doing something with it. So I think ultimately it, proves for a better game and um yeah there's no reason why teams shouldn't be taking it seriously yeah i think in the last part of last year teams have cottoned on to the fact teams like melbourne and essendon generating quite a lot of score out of center clearance and just how open the looks they were getting everyone's kind of gone to work on that and said you know why if if not us oh they're doing it so why shouldn't we be doing it and i've actually kind of I don't want to pat myself too much on the back before <laughs> as we go here, but you might remember in one of our in one of our preview shows, I did actually mention that this was one of the things I wanted to see most in terms of teams really putting some emphasis on these center clearances and trying to generate score from there. That's right. It was the center clearance as a zone buster, if I remember <laughs> exactly. correctly. Yeah, and yeah. that's right. Um, but yeah, like this isn't to say that something like score from turnover isn't still important. But I think that we're definitely going to see a lot more emphasis on the on the clearance. clearance yeah, scores. teams are yeah. just finding different ways to score. So 
the more ways you have to challenge the opposition, the better. And I think this is one of the ones that is the most challenging. If you're getting a really clean look out of center clearance, then the back line, no matter how good it is, you can't hold up against that for very long, really. You're going to concede no. score. No, especially if you're only in you know one-on-ones and... Yeah, it's it's all down to ability and fatigue, and it's that's it's good. I actually think that the six 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 rule has proven to be a massive success. Yeah, I think it did yeah. take a while for teams yeah. to actually work out how to make a bit better use of it, and maybe they haven't fully fleshed it out even now. But you're definitely seeing teams setting up better with that to actually give themselves better chances scoring. I think it is a lesson to uh, maybe stick with something before deciding <laughs> if it doesn't work. I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, if we sort of got rid of rules straight away after thinking they haven't worked. I mean, there's mixed opinions on whether the stand rule's working. Maybe that's another one that will, you know, smooth out over time. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so to finish today, let's do a really quick look ahead to round three. So I've picked out what I think is probably the most 50-50 game, and we'll both give a tip and, uh, yeah, just see what we're thinking with this game. So it's actually... Uh, one we've already referenced. So it's the Bulldogs-Sydney game. So this is in Melbourne. I'm not sure whether it's at Marvel or the MCG. I think it is at Marvel. Probably at Marvel if it's a Dogs home game. So obviously an extremely important game. Bulldogs need to win it to prevent themselves going 0-3. Sydney can uh, get to that 3-0 start and be looking really good early in the season, challenging for that top four. So... What are we thinking here about this game, Johnny? Yeah, look, I, I'm i going to back the dogs. I think that it's just, it, it, this is the doomsday scenario if they lose. And it's on their home deck. It's where they're most comfortable. I'm going to, I don't think it'll be uh, by much. I think it'll definitely be a good game. But I just think that there's too much to play for here. They've got, I think they've got a couple coming back. Um, yeah, won't be easy, but I'll, I'll, I'll stick with the dogs. All right. I'm going for the Swans. I was really yep. impressed by their speed in particular in that game against Geelong. Mm. Uh, the way they were able to generate playoff halfback link up. And they've just got so many sort of small to medium players who are hard at it, run all day. Uh, they've just, yeah, they've regenerated before our eyes here. And I think this is a style that, can really challenge the way the dogs play. And, uh, yeah, I'll be backing Sydney and we'll see what happens, I suppose. One of us will be right and one of us will be wrong. <laughs> can can Isaac Heaney be a top five player by the end of the year? Well, I'm not exactly sure if he can be top five, but his goal sense is kind of uncanny. Like, if he gets a look within 40, he just doesn't seem to be missing at the moment, no matter where he is. Some of the ways he kicks his goals. I mean, I remember last year that one early on against Richmond where he took the snap from outside 50 off a few steps. Uh, in this one, I think he just came straight around on, um, on the left within, uh, it was, I think it was like a, a couple of yeah, a couple of steps from the, it was quite tight, but he just he made this particular snap, left foot, opposite foot, made it look just so easy. It's like, it's super talented stuff and not every player has that, that uncanny ability. No, his, his goal sense is amazing. There was one on the weekend where he basically had about half a second between sort of controlling the ball and getting it to his foot, snap over the shoulder, and it was a goal. It was under a lot of pressure there. So 
Yeah, I think you can definitely be up there as one of the best sort of, you know, medium forwards for the year for sure. Yeah, look, the Swans definitely one of my favourite teams to watch at the moment and I would not be surprised if they they took the points this week. But, yeah, I just think there's, there's too much at stake for the Dogs. They've got to make a statement. It's their home deck. Um, they've just got to, yeah, they've got to get it happening. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll end it there. Thanks for jumping on the line, Johnny. No problems, Dan. And uh, to all of you guys out there, hopefully you're enjoying the season so far. Plenty happening. And uh, have a good time over the week and enjoy the footy. Bye for now. See ya.